we're going to read the Bible. And we get the story of Zacchaeus. Yay. So it's Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 28. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem.
Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, if you are new to the church today, and I know there are a few newcomers, uh, especially warm welcome to you. Um, I know the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters here will embrace you, talk with you, but if you do want to come up and say good day at the end, I'd like that as well. I want to start by asking you a question this morning. I want you to just think about who's your favourite musical artist or, or your favourite celebrity? Take a moment just to think, who, who would it be? Maybe someone pops to mind immediately. For others, maybe you're sitting there going, I don't like any of them. Oh, just come, come with me. It's, it's Sunday morning. Let's chill a little bit. I want you to think about now that you've thought of that person, how much would you pay to meet and greet with that person? To, to be a, they call it a VVIP, a very, very important person. How much would you pay to press the flesh with them? Well, if Arnie Schwarzenegger was your celebrity, put your hand up. Okay. In 2018, he came to Victoria for some muscle conference. I didn't go to it personally, as you can probably see. You could have gotten a photo and a quick G'day Arnie, and he might have said, you know, get to the chopper, or something like that. $1,000 it would have cost you to, to meet Arnie. Now, if, if beauty, if brawn is not your cup of tea and beauty is, maybe Beyonce is your favourite. Colin's smiling there, there you go, maybe it was Colin's. $1,100 to get a photo with Beyonce, but before you jump at that, she does have a no-hugging clause, okay? So you're not allowed to hug her, you just get a photo. Who do you reckon was my most expensive musician that I could find, at least on the internet, that if you press the flesh with, it's going to cost you a big buck? Britney Spears. Britney Spears. Now, that photo was from a long time ago because most of her recent photos are not ones I could probably pop up here on the screen. Um, if you, this is 2014, I found this article, so almost 10 years ago. For you to press the flesh, say g'day on a backstage tour, 3,600 Australian dollars. And then if you want to attend the conference and sit up front, $7,200. So if you want to jump at that one, maybe you can go that way. Now, I've never had a meet and greet. Maybe you have. You don't, want to, you don't have to out yourself now. Uh, a couple of people are saying yes, they have, so there you go. We'll pray for them after. Um, <laughs> I have, uh, I've got a, a few favourite musicians, but one of my favourite ones is Bruce Springsteen. And so the boss came out to Australia a few years ago and I said to my wife, Christina, we're going to see him. I've seen him a couple of times by myself. You've got to come. He is awesome. And so the day came about nine months out to, to buy the tickets to Bruce's concert and I woke up and I forgot all about it. And then about partway through the day, I'm like... Oh, the tickets, I've got to get the tickets, so I'm online, I'm there, I've quickly done a Google search and I've clicked on it and, and there's tickets going, you know, four in this section, three in this, two here, all gone here, five here, none here, and I was, I was panicking, I'm like, oh, they seem expensive, but hey, you know, it's once in a lifetime, right? No, probably not, but anyway, that's what the website had me thinking, and so I'm quickly going, oh, they look up high, they mightn't be good, but hey, they're pretty expensive, I better not go more expensive, Chris will kill me, so I went, bang, two tickets, got them, whew, <sighs> Then I looked at the website I was on and it wasn't Ticket Tech. Mm, yeah, you've been there too, right? 
It was a scalping website, and I've just gone, oh, dude. And when my tickets came up and my name now was Muhammad Fazir or something like that, I'm like, oh. And they don't give you your tickets straight away. They say you'll get your tickets a week out. And so, yeah, nine months out, I'm thinking, oh, I've been dudded. And then I realised the tickets weren't just up high. They were at the back of the stage. So I was going to see the back of Bruce's head. Um, And then my shock turned to horror when I realised what were expensive tickets in Australian dollars were very expensive in UK pounds. Um, So, yeah, we paid... We paid top dollar to go and see the back of Bruce's head, but man, he's got a good back of his head. And, <laughs> and ask Christina later, without a word of a lie, there was no one sitting around us, so I don't know what the website was saying, but Bruce turned around, he looked at me, he gave me the thumbs up and pointed at me. So there you go. So that was my meet and greet with Bruce from about 90 metres away, and it cost me quite a lot of money. Today, we're, we're going to see a fella who goes to extraordinary lengths to meet someone who wasn't his hero, but someone who he was really curious about. We heard the, read, we heard the story read there before about Zacchaeus. He wanted to see who Jesus was. He didn't just want to see him. Do you notice that? The Bible says he wanted to see who he was. He just wanted to see his face. He wanted to see what made him tick. And so today, we're not only going to look and see who Jesus is, but also what he does and what he asks of his followers. And so today, we're going to bounce through those four points. The first one, who is Jesus? The second one, what effect does Jesus have on people? And then thirdly, what is his kingdom like? And as he is a king, then what does he ask of his followers? So let's go to that first one, who is Jesus? And that is the question that these crowds who've been following Jesus for a long time now have been asking. In chapter 9, we, we heard, chapter 9 verse 51, we heard that Jesus faced Jerusalem and started to walk to Jerusalem. And he's been doing so for the last 10 chapters. And across that time, we've seen Jesus involved in amazing things. In chapter 10, he sends out 72 people ahead of him. He blesses them and he says, go and do good works. Heal. Miracles. But make sure you tell the people the kingdom of God is coming. 72 people he, he sent out in the towns before he got there. And then, so they've done that and in comes Jesus in these towns. And what have we, what have we seen? Well, at a minimum, we've seen him drive out demons from a mute man, heal a woman who's been crippled for 18 years, heal 10 lepers, and then he's just wandered into Jericho and he restored the sight to a blind man. And then not just what he's done, but what he's been teaching. The story of the Good Samaritan. Stories about poor people going to heaven while rich people go to eternal damnation. He would have had a massive following by this stage. And let's just remember, what time of year is it? 
It's Passover time. It's Passover time. So crowds would have been flocking to go to Jerusalem, just like Jesus was. But what is in their mind? Thousands of years ago, our God saved us from our oppressors, the Egyptians, at the time. And there is a promise that God will save his people again. Here comes a guy, Jesus, undertaking amazing works, amazing signs, amazing wonders at the right time of year. Could it be? Will this guy deliver us from the Romans? Is that, is that who he is? Anticipation is building. Is this man the promised Messiah? You see, a, a Messiah was promised, and for many of you, you may know this, but I just want to push pause and step back and say many Old Testament passages talked about the coming Messiah, the one who would deliver God's people. Two verses up there. One is Psalm 2. Sorry about the small writing. I have installed my king, my king on Zion. This is God speaking. On Zion, Zion, Jerusalem, the holy mountain. Everyone goes up to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and what? I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them. You will be the king. You will have an iron scepter. You will smash to pieces your enemies. Or Isaiah 42, again, God speaking, here is my servant, my chosen one. I delight in him. I put my spirit on him. Remember what happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? He will bring what? Justice to the nations. He will be a just king. He will not falter. He will not be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. That is what the people longed for. So is that who he is? And I reckon in answer to that, Jesus does these two things today. One is he walks to the base of a sycamore tree and then he tells a parable about ten miners. So let's start with the base of the sycamore tree, Zacchaeus. If you've got your Bible there and you want to open it, we are just going to stay in chapter 19 today. I'll read the first couple of verses Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. As Haley said this morning, no doubt if you grew up in kids' church, you probably got a really cutesy idea of this little guy who rose above his small stature to see Jesus. Go, Zacchaeus. Yeah, you're not a Jew. Because that was not how he would have been looked upon. The passage tells us that he was a chief tax collector. And where was he? He was in Jericho. Now the map there, which we're going to have come up in a minute. Okay, I stole that from Dave from last week, but he's not here, so don't tell him. Uh, So you see Jericho is right on the river there. It would have been a bustling city where people came into Jerusalem. Jericho to Jerusalem, I think, is about 18 or 20 miles, something like 36 kilometres. So people would have moved through there. So it would have been a place where if you were a tax collector, you'd make good money. But as a chief chief tax collector, you would have made great coin in Jericho. But he was a traitor to his people. To be a tax collector, what that meant is that you went in a bidding war with others to say, I will tax this amount of money out of this people for you Romans. And your own wage 
is you gouge out extra money from your own people. So here he is. He was the bottom of the bottom. He was a dregs. He was a scum. He wasn't a cutesy little guy. But this man Zacchaeus is curious. He wants to see who Jesus was. So he climbs a tree and Jesus walks straight to that tree and says that beautiful directive, I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. What happens at that house? Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us what goes on at lunch. But the outcome we know. Verse 9, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Verse 10, has us telling, Jesus telling us what his ministry is, what his mission is. I have come to seek and to save the lost. That is his ministry purpose and Zacchaeus is a prime example of his target audience. Jesus sought him out in that tree, determined that he must go to his house. Whilst we don't know what happened there, we know globally what happened. Zacchaeus saw who Jesus was and he was saved. Salvation came to that house in the form of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is great news. And it's especially great news if you sit here today and you don't know Jesus. You know, like Zacchaeus, that you're in need of forgiveness. You feel like an outcast. You even sit there and maybe your mind's telling you, you don't belong here. You're just a sinner. You don't even believe half of what this bloke's saying or any of it. Please hear today that Jesus is saying, I must stay at your house today. I want to spend time with you. Here at the Lakes, we run a a life course for people who don't yet know Jesus, where we get to just talk about the gospel in a friendly way. We have growth groups where we get deeper into the Bible. And we also have people like me who are happy to catch up with you during the week, have a coffee and talk about the gospel. So what effect does Jesus have on people? Well, one of my brothers said it this week, Brad, as we were looking at the passage, drastic heart change, full stop. Drastic heart change. Here is Zacchaeus going, you know what, here and now, half my possessions I give to the poor, full stop. And of the people I ripped off, I'll pay them back four times. Moses' law said if you rip someone off, you had to pay them back two times. So he went double over what the law required because his heart was changed. He wasn't trying to earn the reward, he'd already gotten the reward. And this was a natural overflow of that. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was. Well, Jesus tells him straight up, the son of man, that's who he is. In Luke's gospel, Jesus uses the term son of man for himself on no less than 24 occasions. And for us, it seems like an odd term. We might be sitting there going, what what does that even mean? Not for people of that time. Because they knew the scriptures. They knew the book of Daniel. Daniel saw a vision and he wrote it down of the end times. And if we pop it up there, Daniel 7, this is what he wrote. In my vision at night, I looked 
And there before me was someone like a son of man. In other words, someone who was a human being as opposed to any vision. All the other earthly kingdoms were these horrible beasts. But here was the son of man. He was a man coming on the clouds. And he approached the ancient days. He approaches God. And he gets ushered into the throne room. And what does God do there? He gives him authority, glory, sovereign power. And what will happen? All nations and people of every language will worship him and his kingdom will last forever. So when he says son of man, they go, ah, you're the son of man. You're the promised Messiah. And so we know then in verse, verse 11, Jesus knew their thoughts because the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So Jesus, typical Jesus, steps back and says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a parable. Let me tell you a story with a hook. And so he talks about the story of the ten miners, which is a parable that is about the nature of the kingdom of God. What is his kingdom like? Well, we heard the parable told before when we heard it read that there was a noble man and he had to go off to a distant country to get the stamp of approval to become king in that region. When he toddles off to do that, some of the people hate him, so they chase him and try and get in the way of him getting there. And while he's leaving, he says to his servants, he says, I'm going to give you some of my money. Please put it to work while I'm not here and I'll come back. When he comes back as king to that region, some of them listen to him and they're rewarded. Some of them don't do what he asks and they're punished. And those who tried to get in the way of becoming king, they're killed. That's pretty much the story. The parable of the ten miners, as I said, is a story that reveals something of the nature of the kingdom of God. So what can we pull out of it? Well, firstly, I reckon it tells us that Jesus as king will not be welcomed by all. And we see that play that out in the next week, don't we? Where Jesus initially will be welcomed in as king, but then what will happen? He'll be crucified, he will be killed. That's the nature of the kingdom. Not everyone will bow the knee to King Jesus. And that's the same in our world, isn't it? We will share the gospel with some and they'll laugh at you. We'll share it with others and they'll say, I just can't believe or I'm not willing to. Secondly, it also shows us that Jesus, his kingdom comes in two stages. So the nobleman here in this story, he goes to receive his kingdom and once he's received it, he comes back and he reigns fully. Jesus is the same. When he appeared in his earthly ministry, he came proclaiming the kingdom of God. He said things like, it's in your midst, it is here, it is amongst you. In other words, by him walking on the earth, the king was here. But his kingdom hasn't come in full fruition. It will only come when he comes back again. And so there will be a hiatus a period where we wait for our king to come back, where everyone at the end will bow the knee to King Jesus. But that hasn't happened yet. We live in that between time and we should expect that. So what does he ask of his followers? A core focus of this parable is about the servants. What are they expected to do as they wait for this second coming? What are they, they wait for this full consummation of the kingdom? Well, in this story, 
they're all given a minor, which is like three months' wage of a labourer's wage. So it's not nothing. And what they're asked to do is they're asked to put it to work. I love the, the Greek basically says, you're to do business until I return. I love that, do business until I return. Now, when he does return, we know there's two servants in particular who do business. And what are they commended for? Well, verse 17 tells us they are commended for their faithfulness, for their faithful service of the king. That is what we're also called to do, brothers and sisters, as we wait in these end times. Faithfulness. What does faithfulness look like through the lens of this parable? I reckon there's two types of faithfulness we see. I think we're encouraged to think into this morning. The first one is faithful stewardship. Now, the servants in this, in this passage, in this parable, they, the money isn't theirs. The money belongs to the nobleman, doesn't it? He gives it to them to be put in charge of it to invest it, to get a return. And those good servants are true to the faith that has been put in them. Any of our resources, the opportunities God entrusts to us, we are called to be faithful in using that for our king. The question becomes in our relationship with others, are we faithful examples of our loving King? In our workplaces, are we faithful examples of our hard-working King? And in our church ministry, are we faithful examples of our King who longs to see his kingdom grow? I reckon that also asks us about our behaviours. Are we reliable? Are we responsible? Do we show up on time? Do we honour our commitments? Do we keep our word? Are we trustworthy, dependable? The other type of stewardship, I think, of faithfulness, sorry, is faithful relationship. The servants in this passage have a faithful relationship with their master. The two good servants, I'll call them, were faithful to their king in their relationship to the king. In his absence, they didn't rebel. They aligned with his will even in his absence. That is what we're called to do. We are called to have devotion. We are called to have loyalty to him as we wait. We continue to obey and walk with him even though we struggle with that. I reckon that's the most basic category of faithfulness. That's how Paul describes the church in Ephesus when he calls them saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Or John in the book of Revelation when he's speaking to Christians who are being killed he says to them, be faithful unto death. Be faithful to your king. There's power in story, isn't there, brothers and sisters? And we often stand up here, and I'm probably guilty of it. We tell testimonies 
of people who lived a long time ago or who, who, who do amazing things out in the middle of nowhere. And I reckon as we sit here in our pews, it seems a little bit unattainable. Well, today I want to bring it really close. I want to tell a very quick story of a lady many of you knew who passed away about two years ago. And I reckon she was a great example of faithfulness. Her name was Margaret Crowther. We were really blessed to have her as a neighbour and someone we got to know really well and I would consider a good friend. Margaret was a member of this church, I reckon for about nine years or so, but from the day um, Dave and Ruth came up here on the coast, her and Bruce were great supporters of this church. You did have to speak to Margaret for very long before scripture flowed off her lips. And then inspired by the love that she felt from her king, good works flowed from her hands. As I take up the connecting pastor's role, where one of my core tasks is to look into the area of pastoral care, that is, how do we love and help people who are going through tough times? I have been absolutely gobsmacked with the amount of times Margaret's name comes up. It comes up again and again and again. People say, oh yeah, Margaret used to visit her or Margaret used to go to jail and visit them or Margaret used to provide meals for them or Margaret ran a study here. Again and again and again, she showed faithful service. Even to non-Christians, especially to people who didn't yet know Jesus. One of our friends who are non-Christians bought Margaret's house and she had such an impact on them that they've decided to call the house Margaret's house. And this is from a lady who would never not share the gospel. She would always bring the conversation back to Jesus. And there's a story someone told me a few months ago about, uh, about Margaret, and I do want to quickly say Margaret's husband, Bruce, died about five years before she did, and she loved Bruce dearly. Please hear that from me. She used to call him my Brucey. And one day this person was working alongside of Margaret and she said to Margaret, she said, you must really miss Bruce. And apparently without even faltering, Margaret said, not really, I get more time to serve Jesus. (laughs) That was where her heart was at. She knew she'd see Bruce again because she told us that. But she was a faithful servant in his kingdom. She saw that as her joy and her privilege. A great example. I reckon she knew that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and if he's her king, then that's her job as well. Let's turn to what is a reward for those who diligently do business until I return. Well, their reward is great. They are commended. In in Matthew's Gospel, which is like the parallel of this story, they they are told by the king... Well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that the words we all long to hear on the last day? Well done, good and faithful servant. But more than that, we see in this story that they get more opportunity to ply their trade. They get more opportunity to show their faithfulness to their king by doing more work. Now, no doubt if you've been in church for a while and you've put your shoulder to the wheel, you've felt that. You do a good job at something, someone asks you to do more of it. Someone asks you to do more of it. Rather than gripe about it, brothers and sisters, can I say, see it as pure joy that your heavenly Father has noticed the good work you're doing and he's giving you more opportunity. 
What a joy that we have a king who wants us to work for him. So back to the parable, what about the third servant? What does he do? It says he was afraid. So he does nothing. He does nothing. I was assisted this week by my brothers to help me understand this parable more. When one of them said to me, I reckon in this parable, he misunderstands the king as being a hard man. The Greek word for the hard man or the strictness is austeros, where we get the word austerity measures, strict, harsh, unloving measures, which many governments put in. I reckon this third servant thought King Jesus was like kings of his world, hard and unfeeling. There is a a, a backdrop to this parable, a historical backdrop, that I quickly want to talk us through because I reckon it deepens our understanding of the parable. Apparently, when you walk up out of Jericho towards Jerusalem, if you look over to your right-hand side, you would have seen this amazing palace. There's an artist's rendition of it. It had a 90-metre swimming pool. That'd be pretty good even where I live, eh? let alone back in these times. It had an aqueduct. It was an amazing palace. It was built, or it was built for, I was going to say built by, it was built by slaves, but it was built for Herod Archelaus. He was Herod the Great's son. When Herod the Great died, he gave his properties over to his three sons and Herod Archelaus was given Samaria and Judea and he had this palace built for himself. Now the story in this parable mirrors almost exactly Herod Archelaus's life. So back then to become the king you would have to toddle off to Rome and have Caesar stamp your papers and go back you go. Herod Archelaus went to go off to Rome The Jews who were there at the time saw him as a mean and cruel ruler, so they sent a delegation to stop him getting inaugurated. Caesar heard of this, and unlike this story, Herod Archelaus was not made king initially because Caesar thought he was too cruel. True to his word, Herod Archelaus came back and he murdered 3,000 people for getting in the way of him becoming king. So Jesus is wandering out of Jericho, He's telling this parable to the backdrop of this beautiful palace and the people are thinking, ah, the earthly kingdoms that are mean and cruel and that Herod Archelaus who murdered 3,000 people. And I reckon that's what Jesus wanted them to be thinking about because he wanted to make a distinction between his kingdom and that of earthly kingdoms. The whole gospel shows us that Jesus is not austere. He's not stingy. He's loving. He's kind. He's generous. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? No one wanted to be near him and Jesus said, I must go to your house today. We see no evidence of Jesus being anything but loving. We've seen, even in this parable, the king graciously rewards those who are faithful to him. They see it as an honour to serve him, not a task. Now, in verse 22 and 23, the king 
sarcastically uses the third servant's words back against him. And he says, seriously? You thought I was a mean, cruel, hard man? If you seriously thought that, you would have at least put my money in the bank. You didn't even do that. The parable tells for this type of servant there will be judgment. For those who refuse to acknowledge the king, likewise, judgment is coming. Most of the parable, 12 of the 16 verses, are about judgment. And it may not be popular, but it is God's word to us today, brothers and sisters. So whilst it's nice to know there is a reward for those who are faithful or for the times we are faithful, there is likewise stern rebuke for those who are unfaithful or for the times when we, when we are unfaithful. Numerous New Testament passages tell of judgment, that we will account for our deeds on the final day. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Romans 2, Romans 14, even Matthew 25. Jesus talks about that last day judgment. It is coming. And I imagine, brothers and sisters, if I invited you to consider standing before Jesus Christ on that last day, it might be quite sobering. If you stand there to give an account to him for how you've responded to the gospel or not, whether you've shared the good news with others or not, how you have loved others in his name or not, how you have used your talents, your gifts or not, how you've taken up ministry opportunities or not, how you've adorned the gospel or not. I imagine as we do that, it would not only be sobering, I'd say even as I stand here today, I feel convicted. It drives me to my knees in repentance as it should. I don't know about you, but if that's where today's passage ended, I'd leave here with my tail between my legs. But it doesn't. Verse 28, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem. He went ahead. He led the way. And in the next week, absolutely, he'll initially be welcomed as king but then he will weep over the sin of his people. His heart will break. He will then be betrayed, suffer ridicule, rejection. He'll be hung on a cross and he'll die. All the while doing it because he knew that he would be the only fit sacrifice who could make up for our ultimate lack of faithfulness. Our call to faithfulness, brothers and sisters, is not because we fear judgment. Although we know it's coming, it's there. Our faithfulness is out of love for our Lord and Saviour. 
a king. Not who built a great palace, but who bled for his people. A king who even as he hung up there on the cross with nails in his hands, with thorns in his head and a hole in his side, even as he hung up there, he welcomed another sinner in. As he said those words to the criminal next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And then as he died, he said those beautiful words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That is a kingdom that we shouldn't feel compelled to serve in. That is a kingdom that we should feel honoured to serve in. At the beginning of this morning, uh, I asked a pretty inane question, really. How much would you pay to meet someone famous, to press press the flesh for a few seconds? And we saw those amazing prices people would pay for fleeting joy. Today, I hope what we've also seen is Jesus is not one of those celebrities, not one of those you have to pay off. He was on his way to his death, one that he knew was coming because he just told us in the previous chapter what was going to happen. He knew that was coming, yet he took time to personally connect with a lost, sinful man. And then to give those around him an insight into what his kingdom is really like. And for people who were willing to listen, and I pray that includes us brothers and sisters, they heard an invitation and we hear an invitation to a kingdom where Jesus doesn't just call people to come and see him. He calls them to come and follow him by faithfully serving in his kingdom. How about I pray? Father God, uh, thank you that your son and, and our king, Jesus, he is not austere. He is not strict. He is kind. He is loving. He is generous. And more than anything, Father, he is sacrificial. Thank you that his kingdom is one where the lost are not only welcomed in, Father, but are invited to serve in the great work of building his kingdom. Thank you for each of our miners, for the gifts, the talents, the resources that by your spirit, Father, help us to use these in faithful service of your kingdom, especially as you grow your church here on the Central Coast. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.